Welcome. We are joined by John Hennigan, the president of Last Leaf Ventures, joining us from Chicago. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure to be here, Dave. I'm from uh, Aurora, so 40 miles out, the city of lights, Wayne's World. There you go. And uh, yeah, good to be with you and uh, talk to you about Promised Land Opportunity Zone Fund and what we're doing in uh, opportunity zones across rural America. And before we we dive into this, one of the things I always like to to kind of get into is the why. There, um, you're an accounting guy, right? Accounting major back in college a couple years ago. Yes, uh, University of <laughs> Illinois uh, accountant, uh, and then I got involved in investing. So, oh. 20, 2005, I started working for a guy named Samuel Zell, who's uh, since passed, passed last May, but a great investor, uh, a billionaire. He uh, made a lot of his wealth in real estate. I worked for one of his companies back in the day, actually. One of oh, his yeah. broadcast companies, I did. Oh, yeah, sure. J-Core, right? The radio uh, broadcast? Uh, it was TV. But oh, it was TV. Okay, yeah, right. one of one of his enterprises. But yeah, definitely a well-known figure. Yeah, and so I I managed uh, alternative investments for him, so private equity and hedge funds, and so you know I, I got the opportunity to learn the investment process at the the knee of one of the greats. And so is it is it the numbers? Like, what's the connection? Like as a kid, what were you thinking about you wanted to get into? Because to me, as an outsider, it feels oh. like you've got a connection of numbers here from one career to the next. What is it? Uh, yeah. So my dad was a bean counter uh, accountant. And so my brother and I both uh, got into accounting, studied accounting. And then my brother, Tom, worked for Sam first and he had a gig at a, a, a corporate entity that uh, he didn't want to do any longer. He wanted to do deals and said that Sam said, fine, just get somebody to take your seat. And he says, well, my brother knows insurance. It was an insurance entity. He said, fine, get your brother to take your seat and you can do your deals. <laughs> so the both, both of us worked for Sam. My brother's still working for him. I worked for him for uh, 13 years from 2005 to uh 2018 nice all right so so how did you this this uh the opportunity opportunity zone fund here the promised land uh what how did you get involved in that uh so when it was, it was time to sort of tap out at equity group um i was working with another family office so opportunity zone legislation was passed in 2017 and this other office, family office was interested in uh, opportunity zone investing. And so they basically said, go find us a deal. So I spent uh, some time and mostly in 2018, looking at funds and projects and didn't really find the right kind of deal. Um, and then migrated to farmland someone had asked, can you do farmland in an OZ? And I, I'm a little geekish. So I dug into the regulations and there was a little language in there about farmland. And it's, it's actually easier to do 
farmland. Um, you have to improve the the real estate that you purchase within a qualified opportunity zone fund, and that that is funded by capital gains from investors. Uh, and, and to get the tax benefit, the biggest of which is on a ten-year hold, the second gain um, over the ten-year hold, you don't pay tax capital gains tax on. But to get that benefit, you have to improve the farmland in our case. And so what we're doing is drainage tile, uh, grain bin storage and irrigation. Um, it You have to improve it by more than an insubstantial amount is the language. If there's a building there, you have to double the basis of the building. So quite a lot more development in traditional real estate, multifamily or office or retail. And farmland, uh, it tends to be 10 to 30% of the value of the farmland you have to do in improvements to, to meet the test. And there are so many different types of these opportunity zones you have for outside of farmland space. You have communities that use it on a local level and they may call it something different but usually it's the tax structure and it's really all you know you go into a tougher to develop area and whatever the project is some of them use it for a mall or or what have you a shopping zone a residential area whatever it is when you deal specifically with farmland what types what is it about the area you know that makes it distressed that makes it qualified for this okay yeah, great question. So there's 8,700 opportunity zones across the U.S. Um, most of them are urban area. I think it's 30, 40% is in rural America. And those opportunity zones are census tracts. And each governor of each state had the ability to nominate a um, certain number of census tracts in their bottom quartile based on social economic factors, uh, average annual income is probably the, the biggest. And so when it gets to rural America, you could have low average income, but high quality farmland. So we, in our first fund, we invested in uh, 12 farms, six were in Illinois, high quality farmland in the middle of the Corn Belt. Uh, Three were in South Carolina, two in Mississippi, and then our centerpiece farm is in uh, North Carolina, where we invested in 4,500 acre farm, large scale farm where we built uh, a 350 bushel grain bin system for that farm. So, so as you're looking at these different metrics, then there can be a flip. So let's say the farmland could be high quality, but it's more the economic factors of the community that would make it eligible. And then if I'm following this right, yes. and then it could be yeah. the converse the other way around where maybe the farmland's not as high quality, but the economic side is the, is the, the tougher, tougher climb. Is that right? Yeah. It, 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 so some of the, some of the, it's great farmland. It just happens that there's no other businesses in that area to support it. To speak. Yeah, to support it. So 
employment's probably the big, biggest issues. Like so, like so, Central Illinois take Champaign. So it, it, the community around Champaign is not in generally not in a opportunity zone. But then when you yeah, go, you got the university out, there, educated yeah, workforce. Yeah, right. You got the mean? university for employment. You got healthcare. You've got some uh, venture capital, technology, uh, real estate concerns, uh, in, in the investment concerns. But then further out, um, you know, there's not that opportunity to, to commute, and so the average incomes are lower, and high quality farmland will. Uh, will qualify. Will you dig into that? Interest. Sorry, will you dig into that North Carolina project? Uh, so you're really mm -hmm. deep into that kind of finishing it up in the fall. How did you, how did you identify that, that region? And then uh, what did you have to do to it to qualify? Um, so uh, that North Carolina farm was owned by a and in another institution, Farmland Fund, uh, and it was at the end of their life. So it, it came on the market. Our partner in this endeavor, because I'm I'm an accountant by trade, as we talked about earlier, um, and Sam taught taught all of the people who work for them. If, you don't have to be an expert at everything. Be smart enough to get experts involved. So we partnered with Farmland Partners and they're our property manager on Fund One, and so they sourced and underwrote this the deal in North Carolina. Um, and that was interesting. That there was bins on the farm, but they were on the eastern part of the farm, and they were close to the coast, so they were subject to uh, storms, uh, coastal hurricanes, and stuff, and flooding, lower elevation. So we moved the the bins to the center track um, and built a 350 bushel um, system that can handle uh, so, uh, the production on 4,500 acres. And this was still an active farm? Uh, yes, yes. So we, uh, Farmland Partners, found a tenant for the farm. We got uh, a nice market rental rate told him we were going to improve it. And he's like, this, and this guy manages, uh, I think 30,000 acres in North Carolina. And so with his connections, he he can store and manage when he sells his uh, corn or soy. And he's he's got a relationship with uh, a livestock company in North Carolina. And he gets a nice nice price above market because he's a steady supply of, of uh, feed for, for uh, I think it's a pig farm. And how big is, uh, how big are you talking about here? How big is this operation? That's part of this, OZ? Uh, that's 4,500 acres. And uh, one of the things we talked about earlier was, so um, North Carolina uh, has a program to sort of preserve farmland. Um, the state of North Carolina has a farmland preservation department and they've partnered with the, the military, in this case, uh, the Navy that's in the area. And what they do is basically to keep farmland, farmland, they will pay you um, the fair value through an appraisal process 
of the for the development rights on the the farmland. So the military knows that they can continue to do their exercises um, over the land, and they don't have to worry about uh, windmills or solar solar arrays reflecting in the pilot's eyes or things like that. So we entered into a conservation easement. That's the term used to for the payment of the uh, the developments, the purchase of the development rights on the eastern 1,200 acres. So uh, we were able to to sort of monetize that. The echo services, the natural capital portion of the farm and still maintain its ability to generate income from farm, farm rent uh, and appreciation potential on the farm. As you all first start, as you get interest in an area, what is the, what's the reaction from the local folks who are already there? Do they understand what the game plan is? Are they hesitant here and wondering who the heck are these guys? What are they trying to do? What the heck's an opportunity zone? Or, you know, is there a familiarity there? How do you build that trust about, hey, here's what we're trying to do? Um, it's an education process. Um, and and I, I think I, I, it's probably an exception where the local community knows it, that, that it's an opportunity zone. And so it's an education process. Uh, we were at the, we spoke earlier, we were at the Land Investmenting uh, Expo in Des Moines. And we had a booth and I swear there, there must've been a dozen people that came by, saw our little banner and said, opportunity zone, what is this? They engage in a conversation. We look up where their farm is located. And more often than not, there was a neighbor opportunity zone and high quality farmland nearby. And so it's, yeah, it's it's difficult to get the the word out um, we like to say that we're the leading rural development partner for American farming communities uh, in opportunity zones. It's because it's there's not that much competition. We're the only one. <laughs> uh, and we're the really one of the few that is investing in rural American opportunity zones. Although I think if uh, I have a feeling if uh, anybody from USDA was a part of our conversation, they're like, hey, wait a minute, we're doing stuff too. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're trying to uh, promote the rural communities as well. The Inflation Reduction Act had quite a bit of, of money in in in, uh, in that for rural communities and, and development projects. Okay, so talk about D.C. because as, as this as you look at expansion and what have you, you are dependent on some congressional action, right? For a variety of things that you're interested in. That is not the most organized uh, place on the face of the earth here right now, right? So uh, how are you engaging with that? Yeah, so it's um, patience. It's trying to patience. So 2017 Act, so one of the benefits in addition to the tax-free appreciation on a 10-year hold, there's a deferral element and investor puts the capital gain into a qualified opportunity zone fund they don't have to pay the tax that would otherwise be due with the next return until 2027. So 2026 return filed in 27, they pay that capital gains tax. 
there's legislation, it's called extension legislation, that'll move that deferral date from 26 out to 28. And because Washington takes a lot of time to pass stuff, they'll probably have to move it out further. Um, and that'll make it more interesting, I think catalyze interest, because a lot of folks, there's step-up basis if you put your money in and you hold for five years, you get a 10% step up on the gain. So you only pay tax on capital gains tax on 90%. And if you're held for seven years before that deferral date, then you only pay uh, 85%. There's another 5%. So that that would catalyze interest in farmland, I think, and in residential apartment buildings in urban areas. Um, there's a special uh, legislation in the House of Ways Committee, along with the extension legislation <clears throat> that would create, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> that would create. Uh, Congress will have a way of choking up people. That's understandable that's right. right now. <laughs> <laughs> It'll create 2000 rural OZs. And some of, I think uh, 700 overlap with existing. But for those 2000 OZs, you get all of the tax benefits of the traditional, but the deferral is 2032. So you roll it in today and you got, you know, um, nine years of deferral. What, what would the impact of this be to expand this that much? What kind of national scope would this have if they could get uh, that through? The General Accounting Office uh, scored that proposal, uh, and they had a uh, a cost of a billion dollars, one billion dollars. So it's a, it, in my mind that that's like rounding. The Pentagon loses that every day, probably, right? They can't they can't they can't conduct uh, satisfy an audit of the Pentagon. So one billion dollars. Well, why can't you just pass it and then? Some additional money will flow to rural America, which is which you talked earlier. This is the breadbasket. We we need need food to feed our people and the world. We're one of the most productive uh, nations in terms of food production. So, how instrumental, you know, as you look at so many of our rural areas are shrinking, and it's for a variety of reasons, but to have this type of investment potentially in those communities, how does that play out, do you see, in the years ahead, if this could actually get through? Um, so it, there's a lot of infrastructure, and, and I'm not an expert on, but a lot of it's dated and needs to be improved. Some of the deals that we're looking at currently are for, uh, uh, renovating existing grain bin facilities or building new grain processing facilities. And some of it's for organic grains, which have to be segregated. They can't be mixed with conventional grains. And so there's a separate infrastructure build out for organic to the extent that market continues to, to grow. Which is yeah. a big one-time cost, right? I mean, that's what makes it so challenging. Right, yes. F financing that, right. 
and it, there, there's similar dynamic in, and I, I don't know it as well, but cold storage, a lot of the cold storage for the U.S. food system was built in the 50s. And it's it's past its useful life. So there's folks that are trying to re, re, renovate, rebuild that infrastructure at modern modern standards, more energy efficient, right? Um, more more productive throughput uh, for today's higher ceilings. Trucking processing is faster, more efficient, lower fuel costs. You know the the whole nine yards. Who is who's been attracted to be a part of this? Are there certain type of investors that are particularly interested? Are they people who had some kind of either direct or tangential um, early life connection to farmland? Like, who are these folks? Uh, yeah, yes, you're very insightful, Dave. So yeah, I, I worked for Sam. So initially I started pitching farmland OZ to uh, family offices, wealthy individuals in Chicago, New York, Los Angeles. And they're like, well, we don't know farmland where well, we're not going to start. <laughs> it, it, so it only took uh, 15 months. But the folks like in Des Moines and Champaign, wealthy communities that grew up in, in ag and understand the importance of ag, that's that's our sort of sweet spot for investors. So we've, we've got uh, a hedge fund and a couple family offices that are in the energy commodity space. So they get it. And there's the overlap between farm production crops and energy, right? Those those two markets are, are merging as we try to do sustainable avi aviation fuel and some of those other other things. And without the build out, I mean, these these folks are in these smaller communities where they're in a lot of cases there aren't a heck of a lot of people available workforce, you know, technology can maybe make up for some of the for to do some of the work here, but that would seem to be a pretty big challenge as they as they try to build out. You got to have people. Um, yeah, and farmland is a beneficiary of all the technology, right? So uh, precision ag equipment, right? You need fewer workers. It's all automated in terms of planting and harvesting. And then you've got the improvements in uh, hybrids and seed technology. So the landowner benefits from those types of things. And there's other there's other optionality with wind and solar to extent your landowner and you you believe that that's a good use of your your farmland. Personally, I would marginal farmland, it's great for wind and well, wind doesn't disturb. We've got one wind farm, doesn't disturb um, 160 acre farm in central Illinois, doesn't disturb the the ag aspect of it it took a few acres out of production but yeah it technology is gonna is is a is a boon for 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 farmland and farm production and i think that's how we'll uh be able to because it's shrinking farmland as development occurs so we've got fewer acres of farmland and we got more people to feed but i I think human societies have proven that we can 
we can figure it out. There's no need to like encourage people to meet their maker. We can we we'll figure it out if there's there's enough ingenuity. Uh, the U.S. farmer and farm industry will figure out how to how to feed the the millions and billions of people. And you know you're the you're the the self-professed uh, and self-confessed here numbers guy. And just on the most basic level, like we were talking about before we started this recorded part of the conversation, the bottom line is that population's getting bigger, the available farmland is getting smaller every year in our country. So how do you stress that you talked about part of what you're doing is educating people, whether it's folks who might be who might find themselves living in an OZ, but maybe it's an investor, but just to the general broader population, if you will, that concept about underscoring the importance of our populations going up, the farmlands going down. That's a big global challenge for us going forward. How do you underscore the relevance and urgency of that to people? I think there's a lot of people waking up to the farmland um, asset class. So it's a $3 trillion market just in the U.S. Um, and less than, I want to say, 2% is institutionally held. So it, in promised land or um, there's uh, TIA CREF has a, Nuveen has a farmland fund. There's most of the insurance companies have farmland funds or invest on their their own balance sheet. There's a two REITs, Farmland Partners and Gladstone. So it's a non-institutional asset class that Sam Zell would teach you is gonna is gonna institutionalize over time. It, it's more efficient for institutions to hold the farmland and rent it out than for multi-generational farming families. Cause then it gets inefficient over time, right? You got uh, two brothers and two sisters and then they split, right? Who who farms the farmland? I think the solution is let somebody else own it, right? Institutionalize it over time. And, it, and then you become more efficient and you be able to feed a growing pop population. So Sam was involved in... Uh, manufactured home communities uh, starting in, I, I guess it was the 1980s. And it it was not an institutional asset class. It was uh, viewed as trailer parks. Who would invest in trailer parks? Well, he invested in retirement communities that were manufactured homes and they're in beautiful locations um, that people would want to live and it li could live affordably. Uh, and that he took that public, it's equity lifestyle properties. It's the best performing uh, REIT stock since it was listed. And it, that asset class got institutionalized. In this conversation, you've probably referenced Sam Zell about a half dozen times. That would <laughs> that would appear to me that you you have quite a level of fondness for his, oh, yeah. for his business about... leadership. What was it about that guy? I just, just foresight. He saw trends advance. Um, 
he he may not be the first to figure out that sort of he's they call him the grandfather of the read he didn't create but he 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 like he says he he made it sing he listed three reits an office reit um apartment reit and equity lifestyle um and he created this institutional asset class at least in the us and to him liquidity was value it created value for a society for investors kind of thing well, John, it's been good to talk to you. Appreciate the deep dive into this. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Dave. And uh, if anybody's interested in investing in Promised Land, we have a website, uh, promiseland.fund. And uh, we're interested in talking to anybody interested in hearing what we're doing. Thanks. We appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Dave.